Ante Up is your poker magazine dedicated to the everyday player and their poker rooms. Pick up a free copy at your favorite poker room nationwide each month. But Ante Up is much more than a magazine. Visit AnteUpMagazine.com daily for breaking news and each week download our award-winning poker cast. Join us on our action-packed poker cruises to exotic destinations. Ante Up, it's your poker magazine. From the Anti-Up headquarters in Tampa Bay, Florida, it's the Anti-Up PokerCast. And now, here are two guys who think they know how to play poker, Chris Casenza and Scott Long. It's August 18th, 2017. You're listening to the best poker cast on the interwebs. I'm Chris Casenza. And I'm Scott Long. I, I can always tell when you're in a hotel room because it's quiet. Because <laughs> when you're home... It's no not cats quiet. running around. Yeah, there's scratching and sniffing and all this other stuff. So don't do any yard work outside. <laughs> Wife no, not swearing at her computer in the background. No neighbor dogs barking. <laughs> no planes flying overhead while you're out by the pool. Well, it's actually surprising that it's quiet here because I learned today this is the world's largest Marriott that I'm staying in this weekend. Holy cow! And it certainly seems like it. There's like it's like it's like a college campus here. To, an hour to walk from the, the parking garage with my suitcases to my room. So You must be in Orlando. Uh, I am in Orlando. <laughs> so exciting to be in the world's worst city. But, you know, the things I do for my constituents. So Hey, that's you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump right into poker. How's that? Yeah. Uh, and, and this is an interesting item because uh, like a couple days ago, actually, before I saw this item, I, I got a um, Facebook message from uh, somebody who's a fan of Annie Up, who's actually opening one of these rooms in Texas soon, and uh, wanted to let us know and, and hope we were going to do a, um, a story on them. So uh, a number of poker rooms have opened throughout Texas in the past months using a model first tested in Portland, Oregon. Games are not raked. But players pay a membership fee to enter the poker room with rooms making their money off of those membership fees and food and beverage sales. So uh, my question to you, Chris, will it work there when it's been problematic in Oregon? Well, I guess it comes down to the legislative process, right? Are there things that people can research now and find something wrong with the way that Texas is approaching this? Because that's what happened in Portland, right? Somebody said, wait, this still isn't legal. You're not supposed to be able to do this. And they start shutting down these clubs and stuff. And Am I correct in that? or? Well, that, that's kind of the fear in all this is that, you know, what happened in Portland, and it's the same thing in Texas, is that whether you want to call it a loophole or not, um, these poker entrepreneurs have said, hey, uh, we are not violating the letter of the law here because we're not taking a rake and we're just offering a private club where people can play cards um and then obviously anytime you have that you have somebody on the outside that doesn't like this that says well that's not the spirit of the law and now let's um let's shut you down or try to find a way to shut you down so um so i think really the question for me here is are the people in texas more forgiving of this than the people in oregon were well, see, that's a good question because if if we look at the states as a whole from a political slant, Portland, obviously, in Oregon, to my mind, is a very um, liberal 
Much more liberal. Yeah, much absolutely. More liberal. And Texas is much more conservative. And generally, in those spectrums, conservatives are against gambling for the most part or anything that resembles gambling. Um, and then, uh, I know this is an interesting discussion because I'm going to disagree with you on that, but finish your thoughts. Well, I mean, a lot of times that's what, what ends up happening is if you think of the conservative states in this country, how many of them have casinos and how many don't? And when I think of Connecticut, that's a liberal state, they have casinos. Think of Jersey, it's a liberal state, they have casinos. Nevada, pretty liberal. I mean, it's not the most liberal. I guess Vegas is pretty liberal. Um, they have casinos. California, unbelievably liberal. They have casinos. So Florida is kind of split down the middle. Every other presidential election, it kind of goes one or the other way, but it's mostly conservative, I think. So there are casinos starting here. But you start thinking about Georgia, Alabama, Utah, Texas. You start thinking about the conservative states that don't really have casinos. You start thinking that's their slant, is that they don't really embrace casinos and gambling as often as, say, a liberal state would. Um, yeah, I think this is a common confusion in political discussions. Uh, most of those states that you just mentioned are what I would call evangelical states. Mm-hmm. So the position to re- um, gambling is more rooted in religion than it is in conservatism. Um, but obviously in those states, uh, the evangelical, actually any state really, evangelicals are generally conservative, right? right. So sometimes we get a little confused in our thinking on why it is – certain thing happened because of the party in power there. Um, so to the point where I was saying I disagree is that I, I generally think uh, I, it's always dangerous when we get into political discussions on the show, right? But but generally speaking, conservatives are more about individual freedoms, right? Mm-hmm. Where liberals are more about government uh, regulation. So I I guess that's why I kind of think that this has a better chance of surviving in Texas because, you know, it's the don't mess with Texas state, right? right. Um, and I generally think that um, a lot of what, what I've seen in Texas is, you know, hey, as long as they're not bothering us, we're not going to infringe on their freedom. So um, whereas in Oregon, it's much more of a uh, let's be sure we're regulating everything and these things are – being operated outside of regulation and so let's find a way to regulate them and then when you regulate them then obviously they can't survive so well well, let me ask you this why if that were true if that uh ideology or whatever was was true why aren't there casinos in texas then why why are they so against it for all these years because what because of all the rogue road games that they had with shotguns and everything and the danger that posed those were not regulated things if they're all for hey you know, don't mess with Texas. You could do whatever you want. Let's just cede from the union and be our own country. Why aren't there casinos there? And why is it well, something that has to be dipped like their toe yeah. into the water kind of thing? And that kind of gets into kind of the history of casinos and how they came about. So, you know, you mentioned Connecticut is a liberal state and has casinos. They don't. They have tribal casinos, which right. you couldn't really not regulate. Now, obviously, a state can not enter into a compact, which we've kind of seen in Alabama if they really wanted to. But again, that's evangelical, not so much conservatism. So right. uh, whereas in Texas, we do have a tribal casino. It's just all the way on the very end and no one knows where it is. Right. And that's the only Indian land there. So if we had more Indian or tribal land in Texas, I think we would see casinos. So 
But and then you look at the states that where casinos are allowed not on tribal land. Um, and New Jersey's a good example. Mississippi is a good example. Um, so why do they have casinos? And that's because they've decided that it was a good revenue model and they needed uh, tourism uh, or a boost of tourism to, to help the state out. Whereas I don't think Texas has ever struggled with tourism. You know, it's it's not one of those states where like, oh, my gosh, I got a conference in Texas this week. <laughs> <Yeah. I don't, laughs> what am I going to do with Dallas for an entire weekend or, geez, Houston? Oh, not not San Antonio again. Um, so they, they never, they've never struggled with that. So, um, you know, I, I think to the extent that, um, there is a push for legalized gaming in Texas. It's more that you look at the proliferation of tribal casinos in Oklahoma, um, and the non-tribal casinos in, and tribal and non-tribal casinos in, Louis, uh, in Louisiana, um, and even New Mexico, for that matter. So all around it, there are states that have gaming that are drawing Texans out of it. Um, but again, Texas is a big state, right? So it, it's, it's certainly Dallas and Houston. They can draw some players from there with some of these casinos. But Austin and, and other big uh, areas like that, I mean, that, that's a pretty healthy, healthy drive to get to a casino. So yeah. uh, I don't think Texas yet is feeling the tremendous pressure that some of these other states did to – you know, um, keep up with the Joneses. So you think it might succeed just because of the fact that they are against kind of this sort of regulation thing and they're sort of like, we want you to be your own person, be your own thing, and uh, kudos for you for trying to do something that if you want to do it, you can do it, we're not going to regulate you. And it, well, that's, yeah, that's and, the other way of, and the other way of looking at it is that if you are, let's get away from poker, but let's just pick a random issue that we don't have to actually pick, but in your mind, pick an issue, right? Mm-hmm. If you are generally against it, right, but someone comes up with a kind of a minor version of it that doesn't really um, have the negative effects that you're worried about having, that's an interesting thing for you to protect, right? Because as long as those people are happy doing that and it's not really bothering you and, and what you're really concerned about, that keeps the pressure off of you to actually do the big thing right so back to poker here if you are really anti-casino in texas this is actually i would argue good news for you because let's let a couple 12 14 uh table private clubs operate in and then all of a sudden those people obviously are not going to be campaigning for casinos now because their business model depends on their not being casinos right yeah you know, as soon as a casino opens up in Houston, all these private rooms are going to die, right? So um, it's an interesting way of – I don't know if you want to call it appeasement or whatever, but it is an interesting way of of making an issue no longer an issue um, without the true negative um, uh, negative problems that, that would come from fully allowing it. So I guess that is the, the, the root of it all then is what – for the people who are against them or the, for reasons why they aren't established in Texas, what are their concerns about there being actual full-fledged casinos in their state? And then are those concerns alleviated by this sort of, you know, okay, this is this is minor. We don't think this is the problem. We think the problem is, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the problems could be. But I, I, I'm just wondering what those problems are for the people of Texas that if they have problems with casinos or the the government of Texas, whatever. 
right. then then are they are these things going to infringe on those concerns or are these things that come under the radar of those concerns and they'll so that's the big question it, whatever the yeah, concerns are yeah. if it comes under those radars then it'll survive and i i mean i think i'm i'm happy that they're doing it obviously anything that grows our game and imagine if you lived in the dead middle of texas i mean you have to go all the way to oklahoma to play you have to go all the way to new mexico to play you have to go to louisiana to play you know that's a huge state I mean, or go on the India poker cruise out of Galveston, uh, Texas. and Texas coming up in September. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I I I hope it succeeds. I hope it thrives, and I hope people realize that. Hey, look at this business model. These people are doing fine. Everyone's paying their taxes. Everyone's, you know, there are no fights. There are no violence. There are no hookers or whatever whatever it is that they're afraid of. I don't know what it is, but well, and that's a good point because you can't really guarantee that, right? So. Um, obviously the sales pitch from these rooms are that it's not that people aren't playing poker in Texas. I mean, the game's called Texas Hold'em, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so there, there are, are, are several really big, big money private games going on every night in every city. Um, and this is an opportunity to um, give some level of security or comfort to players so they don't have to go into a house like Doyle Brunson did with a shotgun right. <laughs> to protect Right. right here, theoretically, you would think that if I'm going to a, one of these clubs, that you know a good club is going to have decent security and, you, and cameras or whatever, and you're going to feel more secure there than you are somewhere else. And that that's their sales pitch. Now, obviously, the the other side of it is, hey, why do I need to go pay a membership fee uh, to go play here when I can go to Joe's house down the street and play for free? So that, that's probably the bigger challenge I think in Texas for these rooms than than what Portland had, which was people trying to regulate them. Well, yeah, I mean, the, and and you know the the answer to that is that one, the security, two, the regulation of it in the sense that not regulation, but the regular, uh, every, whenever you want to play, there's going to be a room and a game. Whereas, look how hard it is for us to get a home game together. Yeah, yeah you know what I mean. Yeah. So yeah, so these, so there's there's some there's a lot of positives to this, I think, and very few negatives. So we'll be uh, we'll be following this story closely because obviously it means a lot for us too as a magazine. And well, the other thing too, it's a relatively new story too. I think it's only been a couple months now since the first room figured this out and opened, and, and now all of a sudden it's been kind of an avalanche. So you know that's the other thing too is that you know right now maybe it's not prevalent to anti-gaming people yet so you know give it another four or five months and 12 14 20 more rooms open up then yeah. maybe we'll somebody's radar and then um, we'll be back talking about it at that point but yeah. we'll see all right cool all right i love this next story uh so how about this for nanny up marriage made in heaven chris if you're interested in learning about fonts and typefaces while playing poker pick up a deck of cards from canadian designer ben barrett fawcett no, or forest. forest. <laughs> Barrett Forest. Good thing he's not actually an advertiser. Uh, yeah. Called the Design Deck. It's $17 for a functioning 52 card deck, but each card has a story and explanation of a different font or typeface. Wow. See, now that's something for like like a collector or, or something because if you're playing with those cards, you're going to be like, hey, it's your action. Wait, I'm learning where Helvetica came from. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Trying to figure out why Scott wouldn't let me use Comic Sans. <laughs> why is he so against this font? <laughs> That's pretty cool. I mean, I so fifty-two decks. So I want. I mean, there's there's more than fifty-two fonts. So he had to probably really boil them well, down. It's fonts and, and typefaces. So yeah, I, mean, I, I mean, don't know exactly what's on each car, but you know, I saw the example. I don't know if you looked at the link of the story, but it's you know. There's no faces. There's no. There's no J design. Beautiful right. kings. Right, right. 
get the K at the top and the diamond and that's it. And the rest of it is a little story. But um, what I thought was interesting beyond just the fact that we're, we're magazine publishers and, and, you know, and the world of fonts and typefaces and poker right. is it, it, this is just another example of how poker can be educational while you're playing. You think about, hey, where's the time where people are sitting around playing cards or doing something social with some downtime? And how can you use that to further something, whether it be education of fonts or finding, um, you know, Iraqis <laughs> or Iraq's most wanted Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's really interesting that this is what people pay here there's there's saleable space on fifty two cards in a game when people are focused on them, and it's just one more example of how this is a uh, poker can be an effective way of disseminating information for people who are creative, yeah, well, it could be bridge and pinochle too, but yeah, I know what you're yeah, saying start with that too they, cards, they, they, yeah. they're so, no regulation that this design deck has to be used only for poker. That's right. But pretty <laughs> cool. Pretty cool. I want you to get me a deck for Christmas. Oh, okay, I'll look at that. Let me, <laughs> at least I can get a free deck from this guy since I screwed up his game. So. That's right. That's right. Uh, any updates to schedule and preview for the Pearl River Poker Open and Annie Up Poker Tour Series at Pearl River Resort in Choctaw, Mississippi, October 26th to November 5th has been posted at com slash Pearl River. The 11-event series starts and ends with a 100K guarantee event, including the $800 buy-in main event that will put the winner on the cover of Annie Up Magazine and in 2018 Annie Up World Championship. and features a couple of new interesting events, including one where winners have the option to take double their winnings in non-negotiable table games chips. Also, listeners have flooded us with hands of the week, but we're still in need of listener spotlight and call-the-floor submissions. Email us at podcast at com or post in the Antiup group discussions at pokerradius.com. So, you know, I wonder, we have so many call the floors over the years that you could just, like, recycle ones from, like, 10 years ago. No one would ever know. Just change the name. Probably could, but, but know, it's do nice fresh ones because the world changes, right? This so, one's from uh, Joe. Yeah, it's from Joe. And Because uh, <laughs> how many times do we re- repeat information on the show anyway? I'm like, we talked about well, this before. I, it, there have been times that we redone hand at least I had no idea we have because I forgot to delete them out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. This sounds familiar. Funny thing is <laughs> I played it completely differently than the last time we talked about it. No, Chris. Keep going. <laughs> Okay, each week we spotlight a listener who emails us at podcast at com, and if they haven't won something from us in the past year, just like we do with Call the Floor and Hand of the Week, we send them something cool. Comes from Rob Paul Chapman. He says, recently I celebrated a joint stag. Uh, does that mean like they smoke Mary Jane? What does that mean, a joint stag? Uh, boy, uh, no, you're, you're definitely not British, but yes. <laughs> uh, okay, so like a bachelor party and um, and a 40th birthday party. He said, I felt a bit old for traditional British stag dues. I decided to do something a bit different. As this is one of the chance to get, uh, you get to have your interests indulged, I wanted to combine a love of fine food and booze with my passions for poker, mountains, and quirky locations. And thus, the first and possibly only anti-up at altitude tournament was born. Love it. We climbed Mount Snowden in Wales. Once safely back at the village, we busted out the poker tables and used the patented Scott and Chris cruise ship formula. Attempted to teach six to eight people how to play poker from a standing start with a view of them uh, being ready to play a tournament. 
I was amazed how well people took to it, and I have now pointed the most engaged towards your show, as I think we may have got a few newbies hooked on this great game. What is your approach and or opinion on poker evangelism? Arguably, no one does more for poker in America than you and Chris. Uh, oh. oh, that's nice. Uh, but you, uh, do you prefer to let people discover the game uh, in their own time? Or if you have a captive audience, do you like to use that as an opportunity to bring the game to the people? I was lucky in that, A, not only did people seem genuinely pretty interested, but B, they turned out to be all right at it. Well, good enough to get by anyway. But maybe in retrospect, that could have gone quite badly. After all, it's a game not without complexity. And if you are bringing the game to people for the first time who aren't necessarily willing volunteers like on the ships, what's your approach introducing the game to people when you're dealing with a group? I've never had that occur, though. I, I've never like just stood up in the middle of a theater and said, "Hey, who wants to learn about poker?" <laughs> you know, what I mean, I mean, basically, uh, I'm hired to teach, or it's part of the ship, or something, or or whatever. Um, but I've never actually just walked up to strangers and said, "Hey, want to learn about poker today?" You know, so I haven't really had that experience. Um, have you? I don't think you have either, right? No, and, and uh, a couple of things I'll say. One, um, this is a Rob Paul Chapman um, honorary show in uh, uh, honor of his uh, wedding and his birth of his child as well, too. So yeah. he will be also uh, the hand of the week this week on the same email, also because it's easier for me to keep track of the emails that way so I don't reread them in the future. Not that we've ever done that or even mentioned that we've done that in the last five minutes. <laughs> um, but no, when I responded to him, I said pretty much the same thing. You know, I was trying to think of when – I've exposed poker to people outside of, you know, our, our events. And, you know, I thought about the poker one-on-one classes we used to do at Derby Lane. But even that, we were kind of being paid to do it. And that's in a card room. So people theoretically are there to actually play. It's, you know, you're, as you mentioned, not just walking up and down the street going, hey, you want to play poker? Yeah, <laughs> they announced it on the radio for us and everything. People were there because yeah. they were going to see us. So, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I don't think I've ever had a, um, um, an experience that Rob Paul Chapman is, uh, uh, detailed here. Now I will say, uh, one of the things I'm, I'm starting to do, uh, to be a little bit more charitable, um, cause you know, we have a lot of charity auctions in my town and, you know, I like to support them. Um, uh, what I've been doing is offering a, um, in-home poker experience, prize for people to bid on where i'll come to their house and and do a little one hour class for their friends and and then you know deal out a couple just for fun tournaments and make it kind of a poker night for and it's obviously geared towards people that don't play often or never played before so um the, the first time i gave that out they actually haven't redeemed it <laughs> well that's funny because if you recall you and i did a charity tournament back when we were at the times at the florida aquarium and oh, that's right. somebody yeah, yeah. got a free lesson from us and an appearance on our show or something as a gift, and they never redeemed that either. So, yeah, so I think it's you. I've got <laughs> more coming up here in the next two months, so we'll see if anybody redeems them. But, so that will be my first real experience in doing this. But even that was kind of invited. They, they invited me into their yeah, home to yeah. explain it. So it's a different story than this. So I would say, I mean, obviously I know – why uh, Rob did this, and I'm glad it worked out, but he's right. It could have gone badly, um, so I'm glad it did go right, but I probably wouldn't recommend that approach. Uh, I think it's more, you know, hey, you're hanging out with a group of a couple 
couples or whatever, a group of friends, and they know you like to play poker. And if if they approach you, hey, you know, I've always wanted to learn, but I don't want to lose a lot of money. And <clears throat> at that point, I would say, yeah, hey, like, you know, I'll be happy to sit down and, and teach you how to play. We can just play just for fun or Skittles or whatever you want to play for. So um, we certainly don't need to introduce money to it. So anybody's losing money here. That, that would be the approach I would go to. See, I'm, um, I'm going to get a bullhorn. Stand on the corner of a very populated area in a city, and I'm going to stand up on a big old soapbox. I'm going to be like, Ace King is just suited connectors. <laughs> oh, again. <laughs> big Slick is his nickname. The odds of you flopping a set are eight to one. You know, Doyle Brunson, what would he do? So I, I really don't want to invite people. I mean, I'm not going to just force my poker knowledge on people who have no interest in learning about poker um the only time i've ever ever talked about poker with anyone is if they ask what i do for a living or if they see me playing in a casino or something you know but i mean i i don't just walk up to people and go hey you like poker no oh let me tell you how to play it i would just never do that yeah you know i think that's a good point i also mentioned to rob too is i think we because I think part of you know I tried to edit this down a little bit, um, but you know I think part of what we we do here at Annie Up is make the game more enjoyable for people who are interested in it. And no doubt there's been a lot of people that haven't known a lot about a poker who've come into the Annie Up universe in one way, whether through the show, the magazine, or a cruise or whatever. And we've helped teach them, obviously brutally, terribly, but we've offered it. We brought them in, but I don't feel any kind of. Uh, responsibility at all to go out and and bring people forcibly bring people into the game if they don't want to come to the game i'm, I'm willing to have the door wide open have them walk in and and explain but i i don't i don't think we i don't think our role or anybody's role should be go out with like sandwich boards and bells and say hey you need to play poker i'll, I'll teach you how to play it right i just think there's enough people out there that are already coming to us or are coming to the game on their own that uh, that we don't need to do that, but you know, you know, poker's plateauing a little bit now, so maybe I'm maybe I'm in the wrong in that. <laughs> Excuse me, do you have a moment to talk about poker? <laughs> <laughs> Find yourself in a situation at your favorite poker room or home game, and you're not sure what the proper ruling should have been? Email us at podcast at magazine dot com, and we'll have Hollywood Casino Toledo director of poker Elliot Schechter tell you how he would have ruled. This week's prize is a 30-minute telephone lesson and workbook from Thomas Gallagher Casino Seminars, which specializes in poker odds and math at poker911.net. we got to rewrite that. I can't say which and specializes in the same time. My tongue just won't do it. How about that? That's the only thing you mess up. I mess up everything else. How about that? I'll say casino seminars that specializes see i can say that easier take the comma yeah, out, make it say which that. is the correct word there so yeah you just gotta get used to it <laughs> i'm gonna lose the comma and then make it that maybe maybe i'm gonna come up with a new set of grammar cards poker cards. <laughs> yes 52 grammar 52 lessons, lessons. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh phonetically spelled uh words out for you for you how to pronounce them comes from randy smith he says i play poker at my local casino in indiana we have one dealer who considers himself the enforcer, and in my opinion, occasionally goes overboard. Here is a recent example, and it has caused a lot of disagreement between several of the poker players and dealers. In a recent hand, there were only two players remaining. There was no bet after the river, and the first player turned over his hand, revealing a pair of nines. At that point, the other player turned over a ten and declared, I have a pair of tens. This player was pretty young and obviously a novice, unaware that he had to show both cards to win. The enforcer then said, I see a pair of nines. 
I see a pair of nines, going once, going twice, and then muck the hand with a ten and push the pot to the player with the pair of nines. The novice had a total of maybe six or seven seconds to react before his hand was mucked. Of course, the novice player asked what was going on, at which point the dealer told him he had to show both cards uh, to win the pot. As was expected, he was not aware of the rule and was pretty upset. I have seen players only show one card on several occasions, and each time except for this one, the dealer informed the player that he needed to show both cards to win. When I stated this to the enforcer, he said that violates the one-person-to-a-hand rule because he would be helping the player who only exposed one card. I feel like he is carrying that rule to the extreme and should have informed the novice player of the rule. What would your ruling be in this situation? All right. Now, before you answer, Chris, I just got a response from Randy to my response, and uh, he apparently showed it to the enforcer, (laughs) who was not not happy uh, that he was labeled the enforcer. He thought that influenced my answer. Um, And then he also said that the player with the tens kind of pushed the cards past the betting line. And therefore, that was additional information that was left out that is now in the sphere for us to um, contemplate here. Okay. Well, I still think that everyone is entitled to their first sort of experience. And whether the dealer recognizes that or not, if it's at his table... Every person is entitled to a warning or an explanation of things at a table. Uh, And I'll use my own experiences at Derby Lane. That first tournament I ever played, that Turbo 30-player, 40-player Turbo, whatever it was that I won, the very first hand I had my cards behind my chips, and the dealer's like, hey, are you all in? And I'm like, no, why? He said, your cards have to be in front of your chips. Now, was that so hard? Would the enforcer have done that? Or would the enforcer have said, this guy's all in? I mean, there's there's sort of common decency at a table and sense at a table. And instead of being a wise-ass, you know, there's no reason why this person couldn't have just said, well, I don't see a pair of 10s. And then the kid would say, oh, and would show the 10. Then when the 10 is shown, then he would say, ah, you know, you have to show both cards to win the pot. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Thank you for teaching me, dealer. Now I'll be more inclined to stay in this establishment. I'm sure your boss would like to know that you made me feel little and threw my pot away when I won it, you know, and you over a technicality, you're giving it to someone else. And that's something that always comes up in our conversations. You don't ever want to award a pot on a technicality. You know, this was a simple misunderstanding and it got blown out to where you were embarrassing a player. You don't, you don't, these people are paying your salary. They're I think it's you. more than embarrassing. He mucked a hand and cost him money. Yeah, they didn't cost him money and probably may have cost a house, a player, and rake. So it was a big mistake. Yeah, so my initial response was, you know, hey, this, this, is, obvious. this is absolutely something that needs to be addressed with casino management. And, you know, uh, I think the best thing would be to uh, call the floor at the time so the floor can come over and render a decision. And I would hope that the floor would, uh, I don't know if you can undo the mistake here, but at least clarify what the enforcer believes he should be doing in front of the enforcer. <laughs> right. uh, and make it a teaching moment. It doesn't have to embarrass the dealer, but it's a good explanation to all the players at the table as to what the rule is. Um, but if you're not comfortable doing that, I definitely think you need to go and find a floor when you get up or you know take a break and go over and mention to them. And so at least they, they are aware this is going on. 
you know, you know, floors don't watch every single hand, right? So who knows how long it would go before Florida would just happen to be standing around a very similar situation from this and then be able to stop it. And who knows how many other novice players would be driven away by this, right? So that's how I would deal with it. Um, but I, I think it's interesting. The, the enforcer definitely is taking this rule to an extreme, I would agree, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but I think – you know, I will give him credit for the one person to a hand rule if if he didn't do the I see a pair of nines, I see a pair of nines, which is clearly a way of his solution to letting the player with a 10 know that he has not tabled a valid hand in his mind, right? Yeah. So if he just did – if he did nothing, if he just sat there silent and then eventually said, all right, <laughs> push the pot to the nines – then he kind of he gets a little bit more credence for that argument. Not enough credence, I don't think, but he gets a little bit more credence. But obviously, he was trying to get this player to turn over his hand. He just did it in a way that I don't think any of the rest of us agree is the correct way. Um, you know, if he didn't want to, if he really felt bad or really felt strongly about this one person to a hand rule, um, I think the better solution is to ask that the player with the 10 to clarify his intentions. You know, he's exposed one hard, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, the dealer's waiting for the second card to be exposed. The player hasn't really mucked the hand. Um, there's no betting action there, so we don't know what's going on. I don't think there's anything wrong. In fact, actually, dealers do this several times a day, simply clarifying the action. Uh, you know, sir, are you are you tabling your hand or not? And then the player would go, yes, I am. And he's like, okay. At that point, now the intention is very clear to everyone. Now he's got to say, hey, I need to see both cards to award the pot. And then the player would turn up the car. And then you're right. After the pot is pushed, then it's a very gentle, hey, I know you might be new to the game. Just let him know every time you – I can't push a pot to you unless I see two cards. And the player's like, oh, okay, thanks. Yeah. That's not influencing action, I don't think. I think that's a much better way of dealing with this and getting the spot. And then the other thing I said is, again, we've said this on the show a hundred times, there's no such thing as a folding line or an action line in any casino. That's right. It's decoration. Very few have a betting line even, but that's that's the extent of it. So if your cards go over a, a, a fictional line on the table, whether it's printed there or not, that's not a fold. So we need to get past this whole there's this action line there. Um, if the player had tossed his cards forward and face down, that's a mock. If they went in the mock, that's a mock. But if he turns a card over and says, I have tens, even if he kind of pushed his cards forward, that's not necessarily a fold. That's not a, the line has nothing to do with it. Yeah. And so we need to get past that. But, but yeah, I, I definitely think that if um, uh, a good poker room manager would be chagrined that this is going on in his or her room and, would like uh, would be happy to know that this is going on now, so he can go correct it. He or she can go correct it and make sure remind player, I mean, remind dealers that you're there, that you're you're operating a business, and a business depends on repeat business, and you need to keep a fair game. That's how you keep your regulars there, but at the same time, when it's appropriate to help a new player out. And again, I I go back to the player with the nines too. If if, if even if he even the dealer was like clearly violating the one person hey I, I need to see both cards that player the nines cannot be upset she cannot be upset to lose that pot no because it's if he's losing it, it's a 
And you didn't have yeah. the best hand. Exactly. Cards speak. Just let the cards speak. And, and I don't want to prolong it any longer because I think we've covered this pretty well. But in that whole one player to a hand rule thing has nothing to do with that either. I, in my, it's, it's our interpretation of that rule. To me, that rule is no one can help you with what your actions are at the table. This isn't an action. This isn't betting or whatever. This is the cards are done. The betting is done. This is now you as a dealer are supposed to, sorry to use this word, enforce the rules. And the rule <laughs> is show two cards to win a pot. Right. That's all you're saying. between if, if I would to muck my cards face down, but they didn't touch the muck, right? Right. And the dealer, whatever reason, or I tell the dealer, hey, can you look at that hand? You know how people do that all the time. I hate that, right? But yeah. tell the dealer to look at that hand, and the dealer looks at the hand and goes, turns it over and goes, hey, you actually won. And then push the pot to him. That is violating the one player to a hand, right? Because the player obviously mocked, and and you're using extra information. Right, but that's not, helping you. You know, at this point, you're just clarifying the action. A guy exposed one of the two cards. Now, I assume I'm going to assume in this scenario that he had pocket ten, so the other ten was hidden, and not that there's a ten on board. But there's a ten on board, and this guy turned over ten at that point. Jeez, <laughs> what more do we need to do? At this point? <laughs> Jeez, hey, come on. <laughs> Hey, O'Malley's move reaches the tournament right along episode five. Uh, We'll meet you on the other side. Hello again. We shove. We have four players to get through, two being the blinds. I'd like to pick up a blind and a half and move on. The cutoff folds, button folds, small blind calls, and the big blind folds. The small blind has us covered by two big blinds and turns over the ace of spades, king of spades. Nice hand, good game. But wait, what's this? The king of hearts, jack of spades, nine of spades comes down on the flop. We flop a straight, but we have a buttload of outs to dodge. To make it even worse, the king of clubs comes on the turn, giving us even more outs to dodge. But when the eight of diamonds comes on the river, we rake in the 20 big blind pot. So in the same round, after losing a pot in which we raised with ace-king and had to fold after considerable action on the flop where we hit neither, we're down to 12 big blinds. It's folded to us in the MP, and we look down at two black kings. Standard raise or a shove? What's the move? All right, easy shove here for me. Anytime I'm at 15 big blinds or fewer, I'm shoving or folding, and especially with a strong but vulnerable hand like pocket kings. If we pick up the blinds, that's still a win for me. And if we get someone to commit and our Cowboys hold up, then we're no longer in fold or shove mode, and that's always where you want to be. Yeah, I might consider getting tricky here sometimes if I know the people behind me are real aggressive or something and I can get them to commit more money because I know they're going to commit more money. They might fold to my shove. But generally, I'm I'm just probably shoving here, especially if you know, there are big stacks at the table and someone's going to call me. I know I'm going to get a call with King, so I'm I'm shoving as well. No, I think you bring up a good point here that uh, that there is probably a more optimal way of playing this hand than the shove, like I am, depending on your reason players in the tournament. I would say where, you know, I thought about this after I saw your comment, and, and I guess where I would go back to is I, I don't remember exactly all the details about this tournament, but it sounded like, if I remember correctly, it was, you know, your average daily $50 tournament or something like that, I believe. Mm-hmm. And in that case, I don't know whether getting tricky is going to end up truly being the most optimal in that situation. In a in a much more sophisticated tournament, I use sophisticated not in terms of the players, but the skill level. Um, you might be better off by doing you know kind of the limp re raise kind of move or something like that. But 
And it's funny that this actually happens because you're about to hear episode six, and next week you'll hear my answer, and it's very similar to my answer tonight. So, all right, very good. Here it comes. Hello again. We make it two and a half big blinds to go. The big blind shoves for four big blinds. We snap call, and he turns over the ace of clubs, deuce of clubs. Our opponent flops trips aces, and we don't improve. We're down to eight big blinds and are still in the same round when this next situation occurs. We're in the cutoff when the under the gun and an MP limp. Each has an average size stack of 13 big blinds. It's to us and we see the jack of hearts, nine of hearts. What do we do with this? What's the move? All right, it's time for the advancedpokertraining.com hand of the week. Send your hands or situations to podcast at antietmagazine.com. If you haven't won something from us in the past year, you'll get a free membership to Advanced Poker Training, the world's number one poker training site. And as mentioned, it's our Rob Paul Chapman uh, congratulations on your wedding and birth of your child show. And um, so the same email that he sent it in. Uh, now, remember, the, the initial email was about beginners and how you get people into the game, right? Mm-hmm. So um, this is a hand that uh, he said he um, played back when he first started playing, and they discussed it during this conversation. Um, so let's not think of Rob in the sense that we know him now as an experienced player, but as a newbie, okay? Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, he says it was a two-table tournament. Uh, he says, so basically sit and go. Um, he says we're on level three. Um Oh, I'm sorry. I'll give you a little bit more background here. I skipped it for it. Uh, it says, his prep beforehand was a half-hour tutorial from a mate, uh, reading the first four chapters of Helmuth's Poker Like the Pros book and listening to a few episodes of our show, Chris. Nice. So he's really in a bad spot right here. Yeah, he doesn't really know what he's doing. <laughs> his strategy was just to, uh, just to stay as long as possible and only play pocket pair seven or above for raises. And also raise ace king and ace queen. Lower pairs, ace jack, ace ten, and suited connectors I was limping with, along with any suited ace, everything else I was folding. Thims was the rules, and I was determined to stick with them. There's, that's not a bad plan, though. And that's very similar to that. I read that book, and that's very similar to what he tells you in that book. And then he starts uh, grouping them into animals and stuff later. But, I mean, basically, if you have rules and you're pretty strict with those rules, you can do pretty well. And so... I don't really fault that. Those are those are pretty good rules right there. Yeah, and I like the I like where you brought that up because I think it's going to play into the end here as well too a little bit. But um, you know, there's nothing wrong with putting yourself on a short lease when you start any activity, uh, knowing full well that you're not going to be playing optimally. But by putting yourself on that leash, you're going to keep yourself from making the most fatal of mistakes, right? Yeah. So. You'll, you'll have a chance of being successful. You're not giving yourself the maximum chance to be successful, but you're also limiting your downside by doing that. Yeah. And that's, eventually, that's... if you play those rules, you're going to say, hey, wait a minute. Maybe I should have raised with the suited connector there. And then you're going to add that to your weapons, right? And that's how you evolve as a player, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, all right, we're on level three. Blinds are 75, 150. Uh, he says, I'm slightly above my starting stack of 9,000. He says, I think it's around 10 or 11,000 at this point. So far, no one's been targeting me. In fact, I think knowing that I'm a beginner, they're staying out of my way, presumably until the right moment. Also a safe strategy for his opponents. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have a fold to our right, and then we're next to act with Jack-Jack. Well, this hand confounds 
beginners and pros alike. Exactly. But I have a rule. <laughs> and the rule that he has is that if he has hands that are, what was it, sevens and above he's raising? There's seven above he's raising, yeah. All right, so these are jack-jack, so this is a pair above sevens, so we're going to raise with it. Um, we're a beginner, um, but they generally tell you in the books and on our show basically three times the big blind and always raise the same amount. So if he hadn't raised earlier at all and this is the first time he's raising, then I would go with 450. If he had raised earlier and was going with 400 or, you know, less with two and a half or something, then he would do that. But generally 3X is decent. So I don't mind making it 450 at this point. I got about 10 grand in my stack and I'm under the gun plus one and I'm, you know, I've got a really good hand. I mean, it's not fantastic, but it's pretty de- a decent hand to, to raise with. So I'm not calling and I'm not folding. So 450. Well, the other thing I like about it, too, is as a beginner, you don't know how vulnerable this hand is. Yeah, right? that's true. You know, we're now scared of it every time we get it. You look down. I mean, no one's ever excited when you look down at your pocket jacks, right? right. Experienced player, because you know the problem that you can get into. You know you have to play it strongly, but you also know how vulnerable it is. For, for a beginner, jack-jack, i got to think, is exciting, right? Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with being excited about it and playing it full speed because you might end up playing it better than those of us that let ourselves get spooked by and 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 we have to use the the thinking that a lot of the beginners that we play against don't know that their hand isn't that strong so they are thinking it's strong so you read that off of them that they must be strong because they look like they're strong and they're acting like they're strong so they must be strong so these hands can be stronger than they actually are when beginners are holding them so i'm gonna raise yeah, the great thing about this this hand of the week being on this this episode too is I had lunch with somebody yesterday that doesn't play poker but is interested by it and it was asking me about my job and everything and so all the stuff that we're talking about <laughs> I had the same conversation yesterday Jeez. about how how difficult it is to play with newbies because of that same reason. They, they don't know whether they're strong or weak, so you can get a read on them, but if they don't know what they're doing, the read doesn't really work for you, right? Now, Scott, did this person legitimately ask you about poker or were you being a poker evangelical and I was not being a poker evangelical. Oh, okay. I did not uh, did not slap my copy of uh, Phil Hummy's Poker Like Pros and go, hey, <laughs> chapter step. Okay. All right. Our hero says, in accordance with my strategy, we make a classic 3X race of 450. Uh, we have a caller in the middle position and a caller from the button. Blinds fold. So three of us go to a flop with a pot of 1575. What I like about this is this hand was seven, eight years ago, and he remembers exact pot sizes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, flop comes King Jack Eight Rainbow, and we are first to act. Okay. Well, we are very happy um, because we've hit middle set. You know, usually you're you're worried about the jacks because an overcard will come and then you'll misplay it. So this time an overcard came, but you hit your set. So you're only trailing one hand, and generally King King would probably want to re-raise you, even if you are a beginner. Because you may not understand the strength of your hand, and you may come along with you know nine ten or something. So um, we're happy about this. Uh, as a beginner, we are told that aggressive poker is winning poker. We are told that if we have control of the hand to start, then when the flop comes, we continue to control it. If we had raised pre-flop and then didn't bet on this board, it would look suspicious. So we mm. need to bet. There's fifteen seventy five in the pot. I don't have a problem betting like eleven hundred, twelve hundred. I agree with everything you said. Wow. Not to be bored. 
Sorry. It's boring. Uh, he says, our hero says from our previous research prior to the game, we have ascertained that the classic move in this instant would be to bet roughly two-thirds of the pot, so we bet 1,000. Okay. Uh, middle position player folds, but the button calls quickly. Uh, the button, whose name is Shani, is the most aggressive player at the table, uh, but a very good player. Um, and with the benefit of hindsight, we now know quite a bit about this player's style, but at the time, all we know is that he played a loose, aggressive style, um, and one very specific piece of information, uh, which is that they expressed surprise that we earlier folded a suited queen 10 preflop. As they said, that was a raising hand for them every time. Uh, this player is also the current chip leader. Okay. All right, so this Turn guy's is- a little loose, and we're throwing the queen 10 out there to make us think there's an open-ended straight draw out there, maybe because the guy had blocked at us folding it earlier. So if an ace or a nine comes, we're going to be a little worried, I think. Literally, yeah, exactly. All right, the turn is a queen, which puts four suits out, and with a pot of thirty-five seventy-five, the action is on us with a board of king, jack, eight, queen, complete rainbow. Okay. Well, I mean, we're really only losing, like we said, to ten nine or ace ten. It's possible that someone would call a half pot or two thirds pot bet on a gutter. It's possible. Um, it's possible that somebody has king queen and now they've made two pair, which is what we're really hoping for. Um, but I I am not slowing down with my set here because even if I'm wrong and this guy shoves on me, I'm not going anywhere. I got ten outs to a boat. The only thing I'm trailing now are pocket kings, pocket queens, and a straight. But the straights are gutter calls, and it's just not a lot of people call a a big bet like that on a gutter unless they're really flush with chips. Um, Especially against a beginner, too, right? you yeah. got to think of a beginner's betting here. They've got something right now, and that means they have you beat, and you're drawing pretty thin at that point. You're going yeah. for the gutter. I guess you could have an ace something there, an ace 10 or something, so maybe your ace you think might be good if you hit it. But um, Well, now that we have ace 10, right? But uh, by the t- on, the, on the flop, we would still be drawing. So that would yeah. be the only thing really I could think. And the other thing too is when you a lot of times people don't give beginners credit for actual hands that you know they'll think their king is good here now. You know the guy had king ten this hand to start. He's kind of loose. Oh, yeah. He's on the button. You know, so he might think his king is good anyway. So I'm going to continue betting, probably, I don't know, eighteen hundred. Yep, I'm thinking maybe even two thousand. But yeah, maybe two thousand. That, that's fine. Easier, too. But yeah, fine with whatever. Yep. Um. Now, here it says, we have in our mind our opponent's comments about Queen-10, and it's spooking us. Uh, whilst Queen-10, I love these British, I can see Whilst, <laughs> the only time I get to say it, uh, specifically doesn't hurt us, does this verbal clue indicate that this player, who could have called a raise with Ace-10, for example, now is caught up, or even 9-10 in a slow played with a call on the flop. That said, we try and put monsters on the bid out of our minds and lead out again for 2,200. Hmm. That's that's so that's if you not average bad. His bet and your bet, then you get my bet. So <laughs> yeah, so exactly. Right. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll I'll agree to that bet. <laughs> uh, he says again. The button quickly calls. Hmm. The pot is now seventy five seventy five. Why can't somebody just throw an extra quarter in there and get us a nice even I number? I know. Um, and we have somewhere between sixty five to seventy five hundred left. The river is an ace. That means our final board, king, jack, eight, queen, ace. 
And we are first to act again. Ugh. These are the hands that you dread because tens are easily fitting into this. Uh, people love their tens when they're loose, and they love their tens when they're in position, and they love their king ten, which then became an open-ended draw on the turn, which then became a Broadway nuts on the river. You know, those types of hands are really frustrating. Um, I don't see myself betting now. I'm I'm going to hopefully check and have this guy not shove on me, and maybe I can call a reasonable 2,000 chip bet or something. I, I, I just don't. I don't see myself shoving. I, I'm hoping that they're just not giving me credit as a beginner, and this guy's got, like, ace-king, and now he's just made two pair, or, or king-queen and two pair or something. I, I, I'm nervous about the 10, though. I'm, I'm going to be honest. I think I'm going to check. Yeah, this is a tough spot to be out of position when you're a new player, and, you know, now these cards coming out. Um, but I also think this is something we're now we're thinking about a little bit more. Again, I don't think the beginner necessarily thinks this through. Um, you know, how many times we, we played with beginners that in this hand turn over pocket fours? <laughs> like, I've got a pair. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, you got a pair, but I've got a six, so I've got a pair of aces, and, you know, give me those chips. <laughs> so, right. um, you know, I at this point, I just don't know many beginners that would actually go through that thought process, and maybe it's something you'll learn eventually. Um, but it, it – we know you have every reason to believe that, that that this is a bad card for us. So for lots of reasons. Um, you think so you're, you're yeah, checking too, guess, probably right. I think the safest thing is to check and then um, reevaluate. And also, I should say he mentioned here that obviously we're at you know at this point with the pot, anything we bet, we're almost committing on ourselves, is what he said. Um, that may not be correct, but I mean, we put we bet twenty two hundred last time. We could probably make the same bet here and then still fold if we had to. Yeah, because let's look at the blinds. They're one seventy five one fifty. You still have ten big blinds at fifteen hundred. If you've bet four fifty from eleven thousand, you still have ten ten and a half, and then you bet twenty two, so you still have basically eight. So even now, if you bet twenty two again, and then the guy shoves on you, and you got this feeling that he definitely has the ten, you still have like six grand left. You still have, you know, geez, what ten? So six grand and one fifty, ten big blinds. So that's twenty, thirty, forty. You have forty, a ton of ton of money left. So yeah, yeah, you can get so, away from it. Forty big blinds or whatever. So yeah, so actually, it's a good point that you probably really aren't committed. Yeah, make that last bet if you want, but maybe he'll just value bet for two grand instead of shoving for. You know your total six or seven or eight where you have left. So I have a I have a feeling that I'm going to check call. All right, our hero says we decide to play it safe and check. Button comes alive and bets thirty five hundred. Uh, I think I'm going to call, and the reason being is one, they don't respect us as a beginner. Two, I think we talked about this that if you had about eight grand there. Or even even the worst end, he said sixty five hundred. So we yeah. make this call we have three thousand left, which obviously is a big chunk out of our stack with this hand, but still plenty of play. You still have plenty of play. Yep, and you're learning a little more about the game and about the person. Um And yeah. I would argue the odds are still in our favor that we have the best hand here too. I mean yep. it's not like it's not like a crying call necessarily, I think. I think this is a even money call. Yeah, I'm gonna call. All right. Uh, here it says, despite the set, we appear to be losing a lot of hands, so we reluctantly fold. 
The bar doesn't show, but at the end of the level, there's a break, and we get chatting in the bar. He tells me he had pocket kings, and I tell him I had pocket jacks. He expressed surprise and admiration with the fold. In fact, he marched uh, me back into the game room to tell the others that I was going to be a proper player if I could fold a set in the river in my first ever game. From that point, I've always got respect in that game. The hand proceeded to be discussed at length by various other players, all seemingly suggesting they had done different things in both of our positions. So I'm interested to hear how you would have played it from my seat. Uh, but he says, however, the reason why I add the post uh, postscript is not a brag. In fact, uh, the opposite, as I've played that hand over in my head several times since, with how I play now and what I know, what I now know, I'm just not sure I had the discipline to check fold a river with a set. Although in hindsight, that probably was the right move. So basically, I think even though I'm a better player now, I probably lose more money on that hand these days, even if I like like to think I wouldn't. Yeah, I can see his train of thought there with the whole lose more money on it. Because we do that a lot now as, as players who are more experienced, as we make more calls because we're more sophisticated. But I also think you make up for that with the right calls later that make you the money that you would have folded as a beginner as well later on. So I think that they're probably a six and one half dozen of the other. Um, yeah. but the, the set of kings, that's hard. That's hard to put them on that, especially because, you know, we have multiple players in this hand pre-flop. And when you have king, king on the butt, and yeah, okay, so a middle position calls the raise, generally somebody with king king is not going to let four cards be out there against his kings on a flop on a raised pre-flop action to him generally they're not just going to slow play kings there they're going to re-raise to get isolated or even take down the pot now because he made 450 he's taken down 900 a thousand he's taken down basically 1100 right there if they fold then that's a decent for 75 150 without having to see a flop that's a decent pot very few people would not re-raise there when you have two people in the pot ahead of you and you don't see cards yet. You're vulnerable to any ace, and you're vulnerable to these other cards getting a, a decent a price for a flop. I, I find it hard to believe he had pocket kings. I really do. I mean, I'm not saying he didn't because it's clearly it's a story that he told and and was told to him. Well, I totally agree. And to your point, add to your point, you had the blinds behind you too. Yeah. I mean, I know it's a three x raise, but it sounds like everybody's pretty deep right here. You know, I'm probably calling that raise with a pretty wide range from at least from the big blind, but even maybe from the small blind. So you're up against four cards for sure, right? Because right. you have two hands ready, and possibly another four cards behind you. That's really hard to win with kings at that point. Exactly. There's if you're the look, just look at it from the big blind standpoint. And it gets to you. It's fifteen seventy-five in that pot. You have one hundred and fifty already. It costs you two hundred or three hundred. I mean, to win fifty, you're getting more than five to one on your money to see a flop, because that yeah. guy just called with his kings. Uh, to me, that's a really risky move, and to just call yeah, again after the flop is risky, because okay, so you got a set, but we bet our jacks because we knew the board was vulnerable. Any nine ten, any king, any uh, queen ten. There are a lot of hands that are vulnerable that I mean that you're vulnerable to. So for him to just call again, then to turn on the queen with the well, queen there, eh. yeah, I, I don't know about the the flop action. I think at this point I'm trying to put myself in this guy's mind. You're right; we're completely on the same wavelength pre-flop that that was really really risky because um, he really what he did pre-flop is turn his kings into a set mining situation, which. More often than not, we're comfortable with the jacks. I'm never comfortable with doing no, that with, not kings. with kings. No way. 
So, but then we got lucky and we hit our set. And now, obviously, again, being experienced players, we, we know that, that there's some danger on this board. But our lone opponent now is this brand new player. Um, and generally, I would say new players are very prone to fold, right? Which is probably what his strategy was pre-flop. I would like to think he wasn't focused just on Rob because there are other people in the hand that we obviously discussed that are more important. But now he's down to just Rob. He's down just to the new player. Here's a player that raised. Here's a player that bet out now. At this point, I almost think if you raise, I'm not. I'm not going to put Rob here on some kind of drawing hand here. I'm going to put him on a made hand here or a hand that that we have crushed. Obviously, we have the we got the nuts. Well, yeah, we do have the nuts right yeah, now, right? Flop, so. Yeah. But um, at this point, I think I'm a little – I'm at this point worried about spooking him, um, and I'd rather just have him keep – this is a classic walk the dog for me here. And and I would call the way down the river and then raise on the on the river no matter what else comes here on this board. I guess it's a new player. Yeah, I guess a new player. Eh, wow. That was – it was pretty ballsy, but it paid off for this guy. Although he got – I mean, uh, um, Rob folded on the end, so pretty impressive. Yeah. Pretty impressive. Yeah. Okay, I'm Chris Casenza. And I'm Scott Long. We'll see you at the tables. Anti-Up is a production of antiupmagazine.com. Contact the show at podcast at antiupmagazine.com or call our hotline at 206-338-6344. If you'd like to advertise, send an email to advertising at antiupmagazine.com or call 727-331-4335. Some music used in this episode comes courtesy of the Podsafe Music Network.